Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Academia. I'm Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And we are in summer mode now, so we are once again separated by many miles. Many miles indeed. Probably a thunderstorm or two. Right. Good old summer times. Um, we have for you, I think, what we could maybe call our, our very first very special episode. We have. It is a- kind of a very special episode, but it doesn't have like happy, fun things in it, does it? No, well, it's it's not going to have the happy ending, right? Like at the end of a very special episode of a of a sitcom where we've you know we've all learned our lesson and life will be okay from here on out. Um, that's I guess our our initial warning. We don't end with thinking about life is going to be okay from now on. In fact, it's it's, it's sort of a call to not so much call to arms, uh, call call to attention uh, issues, and specifically, we're talking about labor precarity in academia and from our media studies vantage point. So, yeah, we're trying to bring attention to to these key issues. And in order to do that, we are taking uh, a bit of a broad path through some of the issues that are going on right now. We're looking at uh, some things that are happening within SEMS and efforts by some SEMS members to create a precarious labor organization, as well as looking at a couple of high-profile examples of difficult labor struggles that are happening in, in universities around the world. Yeah, so we're trying to give you here both an overview and then some specific stories, although the specific stories are applicable to the overview. So trying to give you some good information here. And uh, in preparing for these interviews, I've, I've tried to do a lot of research and, and cover the main stories that, you know, happening in places like Wisconsin and Montana and North Carolina. And so we'll put uh, links to a bunch of those articles that I've come across that I've found most informative on our website aka-media.org. There we go. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so after this episode, if you want to further educate yourself, we will have links on our website um, for some of the key stories that are going on. So, Chris, um, it's always fun to start with big data. Uh-huh. So in the 1980s, one in five faculty members at American universities were contingent in some kind of way. They were mm. adjuncts or part-time or in unstable positions. By 1998, that was up to 43%. Hmm. You want to guess what the what the current percentage is? I could guess because actually... You I, probably I, know. I've had, you yeah, like know. I said, I've, I've, I've done some of these research. Yeah. Uh, so, and I believe, I want to say 70%. Is that where we're at yeah, now? Yeah, close to it. Yeah. Somewhere between 65, 70%. Okay. More than two thirds. Yeah. Stop and think about, I know, you know, People do this on Twitter all the time, and it gets annoying, but, like, stop and take that in. But, like, stop and, and take that in. Like, think about our country and how many faculty. And, and especially think about the what contingent labor means. And it's, a, and it's a broad swath of positions, but especially it means uh, oftentimes you are working full-time hours, not getting paid anywhere near commensurate with that. You're not getting benefits. You don't have job security. You're year to year. Oftentimes you're working more than one job. And then think again about that 70% or 65 to 70% figure. Right. Uh, And of course, this is at a time when it's clearly obvious that a university education is one of the most powerful predictors of, of future earning possibilities and both the economic and the cultural value of higher education are 
pretty robustly defensible, mm-hmm. but apparently the value of, of university educators is not so robustly defensible. And of course, these are, this is part of larger trends happening, and especially the buzzword to describe a lot of this is neoliberal trends, right? And treating higher education like it's another form of business and literally putting CEOs in charge of universities. And that's not what we do. And that's not how we think it's best to be done. And it's getting increasingly frustrating as no one seems to listen to us saying that. But on the upside, um, as we learned from, I believe it's Southern Illinois University, you can pursue teaching in a university as a hobby. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, so you could sign up to to be a you know serve on serve on committees, serve on um, you know, dissertation committees, advise right. graduate students, and that kind of thing, just for the just for the sheer pleasure of of engaging in the intellectual pursuit. Yeah, if you're not familiar with what Michael's talking about, this was a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, uh, SIU advertised for, and it was specifically for. I think they were targeting alums, but it seemed to be they'd take anyone um, to kind of come back and just for the love of it, right, for the sheer uh, joy of being able to work with students uh, for free, do all these things. And that's another component. Like, we love our jobs. This is partly why many are willing, you know, especially the teaching aspect of it, to do more for less is because we love these jobs. But that can so easily be taken advantage of. Yes, it can. Okay, so now we're are we sufficiently in a I dark think place? yeah, yeah, if you've not all turned off yet, uh, we we do have more content, other people talking about the sad state of things. Yeah, so to kick things off, we wanted to share a conversation that I had recently with three of the many folks who've been working really hard at creating a new precarious labor organization within SEMS. This is an issue which is at the heart of our discipline as it is with many others. And a lot of folks have been working very hard to brainstorm about how it is that the organization can respond better to the needs of, of contingent faculty and to think about ways in which we can uh, build resources and build solidarity. So in pursuing that conversation, I spoke to three folks who have been who have been hard at work on that effort, although they are just three among dozens who have who have been working to make sure that that this issue gets some attention. So we are joined today by three of the scholars who have been working within SEMS to create a new precarious labor organization. And so we thought we would take some time to talk to them about it and um, see just what that might mean. The three people we have joining us today are Jamie Rogers, who is a PhD candidate in comp lit at UC Irvine, who's doing research on African diasporic literature and film, and is, as I hear, just a couple of weeks away from uh, finishing. Jennifer Wong, whose PhD in Media and Cultural Studies, is from UW-Madison. She's a broadcast historian whose research focuses on gender, radio, and daytime programming, among other things. And also Bruce Brazel, whose PhD is from NYU. He's a film scholar who does work on race, sexuality, and region. And he's the author of The Possible South, Documentary Film and the Limitations of Biraciality. All of you, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I was wondering um, if one or all of you could talk about um, 
how the how this effort to create a precarious labor organization got started? Uh, well, if I if I hadn't put out the call um, for a precarious labor organiz- organizing meeting, um, someone else would have. You know, I think it's it was just um, inevitable given the times. But on a personal note, I I, I would not have had the courage to um, pursue it without the encouragement that I received from Bram Wapchek, um, the SC, the president of SEMS. Um, and that was real important. Of course, in hindsight, she made me regret what you know her encouragement has brought forth. I think the thing to think about is that this is not one thing, but many things happening simultaneously. So um, the idea of the organization is just one item um, of a number of things that were happening with the Women's Caucus, the Caucus on Class um, as well. Um, and so it's not really, it's not coming out of a vacuum but rather um, really the zeitgeist is where it's coming out of, just what's happening yeah. in general. So it's, even though you said you just want to focus on the, um, this, this kind of like organizing, the organizing has been taking multiple forms. And I think that's an example of the why that, um, this is an issue that kind of spreads throughout all of the membership. Um, it's not limited to certain sort of groups. Right. And am I right in in noticing from the uh, from the notes that you had prepared for the board that this is an issue that obviously has really clear socioeconomic class uh, ramifications, but also is pretty strongly gendered. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I joined in here coming from a different perspective of some of the other people who are involved in. Uh, or who, who constitute precarious labor, uh, that or organization or in that situation, um, as a person who um, took some time off for family responsibilities. Um, and it's uh, 60%, I think, roughly, the conservative estimate is 60% of contingent fan- faculty are women, and uh, roughly the same amount, 60, around 60% um, of tenure track faculty are male. Um, there's a neat symmetry to that. Yes, there is. Jen, do you... Do you have a sense of how how strongly that generalization holds within um, within media studies? I would suspect that it might even be more exaggerated there, but I'm not sure. Possible. Um, I mean, I, I can only think about you know us, you know, being in grad school, and that there um, were very few people who had children all in grad school, and very few people, even who were professors, who had children. Um, who were young um, when we were um, when we were studying. So I think that um, it is a system that is set up um, for one person, right, to be extremely devoted to their um, to their career, um, and mm-hmm. family responsibilities for either a man or a woman are not really considered. And so I think I've I've personally have felt kind of alone. Um, for many years, um, and was so grace- grateful that Bruce um, put together this this group because I felt like I was the only person with independent scholar on my <laughs> SEMS name tag, and I was so grateful that there were some other people who could join together to talk about some of the issues and problems we're facing. There's so much taboo about that, right? Yeah, I mean, it feels like this sort of scarlet letter to be identified in that way, and I've been identified that way in the past, and. Um, a, a huge proportion of the members of our organization have been and are, and it seems like it's so difficult to get beyond, just to get beyond that kind of stigma about talking about the disconnect between somebody's scholarly or intellectual legitimacy and their institutional affiliation, as if the institutional affiliation is the thing that certifies your work. 
Well, I was just going to say that I think there's sort of a, a vicious cycle there as well, because, um, you know, the, the, the belief is or, or the hope is that you earn your affiliation by your scholarly work. But given the way that, um, you know, from the very beginning, from graduate school on, it, it's all dependent on the kind of resources and support that you're given. You can't do the kind of work that you need to do to get these positions if you aren't financially supported to do it or given the time to do it. And once you enter into the sort of precarious labor force, you are wholly denied access to the resources you need to do the kind of scholarship you need to get the jobs. And like you said, it is sort of you get the scarlet letter. Um, I, I think um, in the actually in the precarious labor group proposal, there's some statistic or mention about you know, once you're on the market for three or four years as an adjunct, you basically get cut off from, from the hiring process in general. You've, you've been marked as somebody who has already been passed over those years. Hey, can I pick up on something that Jamie said and kind of go a little place into a dangerous zone? Go there. There is a thing that we don't want to talk about, which is that in many ways, well, first of all, as an openly gay man growing up in the South, we always had to this thing about um, when you did certain things like for radio shows, you would use a pseudonym or something. And in many ways, it's like one of the things was, should we be using pseudonyms because we're on the job market and we're talking about this issue? How is this going to affect your, um, our ability? Um, it's not like when we did the proposal for the um, precarious labor organization, we specifically left off names. We did it as a, as a group of concerned people Although many people said, yeah, I would like to include my name, we felt that it was better to keep it anonymous um, as far as that piece goes because of this sort of fear of repercussion. And so then jumping off from there from what Jamie was saying about um, precarious labor in terms of the cycle, there's this, I think, unfortunately, many tenured professors are not really... Um, as enlightened on the issue as they think they are. Mm. And I know that's a dangerous thing for me to be saying, um, but I think it holds up. And you see this where, when you think about tenured professors are actually beneficiaries of the system, and this is the system that is kind of in a sense, um, we have a structural problem, I guess you could say here. So in many ways, when the issue comes up about precarious labor, um, Tenure professors always can kind of absolve themselves of this problem by claiming institutional structures. And it is an institutional structure issue. And of course, that is the larger university system and the educational system. Um, and so, I mean, so I'm not saying that that's not a legitimate um, reasoning to absolve oneself of responsibility for the problem, that uh, it is a structural feature. But I think what happens from an experiential perspective for people that are in the precarious labor market is this thing that once you've been there four years, you've kind of passed your expiration date, you're no longer good. And so it becomes an issue of not because of institutional structures, but because of personal failings. So there's this claim of institutional structures until it becomes to the actual precarious labor. And then it's for people that are in the that category it gets the approach as being personal um, deficiencies are why you're in this position. 
where it's no, it's institutional structures, just like your inability for you that are tenured to inability to change the system. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, there's this, and I guess it goes back to kind of, we think of Gramsci's common sense and the idea of that common sense is contradictory. And this is like one of those major contradictories of the situation and where people can absolve themselves claiming institutional structures, but yet precarious labor are, are in terms of placed into personal um, deficiencies and failings. And I think that's something that people don't want to hear, and it's something that's uncomfortable to hear. Um, But I guess that's my take. And it sounds like it's something that people really need to hear. Right. And I will. I've jotted down a couple little notes before uh, we we hopped on, just to remind myself of some points I wanted to make. And that's exactly one. Bruce is is that tenured faculty. I'm not talking junior faculty or people who are you know, just leaving precarious situations or still feel precarious, but tenured faculty have to be the ones that are advocating for change within the institutions and can't, like you said, Bruce, just point to, well, it's it's the structure and isn't that a shame um, because the folks that are in the precarious positions can't do it. You know, we could advocate for ourselves all day long and, and discuss the the situations that, that we're in and, and you know, provide the information and all of that but but as far as change within the system itself um, that's got to come from tenured faculty it often seems to me that um, virtually everyone in academia feels like they are an outsider and feels like they are um, not in any kind of position of power even though they may well be um, and of course people have different sorts of power in different kinds of circumstances but um, this sense of being unable to intervene in the operations of the machine, I think is pretty, it's pretty widespread, even among people who are, you know, maybe endowed full professors in, in leading graduate programs. Well, one thing that I think um, these groups, um, the precarious labor group, the women's caucus, the caucus on class is taking up is trying to um, create some, some sense of how to approach this issue. And mm-hmm. so the Women's Caucus has created a um, best practices um, document that, they, that they're presenting to the SEMS board. The Cox on class had um, considered writing one as well, but then we've decided instead of having a bunch of documents floating around, let's support the ones that are out there. So mm-hmm. there's the precarious labor group proposal, there's this um, best practices proposal. And I think um, that might be a way once these things start to become part of the public record to have a place for tenured faculty who are sympathetic but haven't known what to do to go mm-hmm. and take a look. We had the planning group at the conference where we had an organizing group, which was very well attended, I thought. I mean, the room was packed. Yeah. Um, and as a group, we believed, and, and again, this goes back to this issue of self-representation. How do you feel as a group? What will empower you as a group? Not who do those that are um, in charge think what's best for you in a paternalistic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we all agree that we feel we need an organization similar to the graduate student organization as the means for organizing ourselves. That's the best structure, not a caucus, not a class, not a caucus type structure. Mm-hmm. And so that's what our proposal is. Um, we're proposing that there be a similar type um, organization to that, which would mean you would get board representation. Um, right. the way students do. Because right now, the way the system is sort of set up, there hasn't in the last 10 years has not been, as far as I can know from looking back through the records, 
um, somebody from the precarious labor on the board. So it's been non-represented the way students used to be non-represented. Um, and so that's why the group feels that that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Whether the board will go that way or not, I have no idea of telling. Sure. But I do know we told them and we made a strong argument about why we think that this is the best way for us to organize. So it comes down to, are they willing to empower us through the means that we think is best for ourselves, or do they want to tell us what to do? So uh, an organization would be, that's essentially one of the three different types of organizational units within SEMS, right? We have special interest groups, which are scholarship focused, that are that are oriented around a topic area. We have caucuses that are a little closer to um, what this group is, is dealing, um, the kinds of issues that this group is dealing with in that they are, that they are focused um, more on identity issues related to the, um, to the members. And, but the organization makes it a more kind of forceful unit that, um, that is recognizing this as a, as a really important distinct constituency within the, the institution as a whole. Is that, a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think also it's because um, just as students cross all classes, all caucuses and things are crossed by students, precarious labor crosses all mm-hmm. caucuses and things as well as a group. Right. And I think that's um, why we think that it, and because we represent such a big group, I mean, Students are probably around 25% of the, the membership were over 20% of the membership, depending how you define, um, define it, because we don't really have the category being collected. The data is not collected, so it's kind of an estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you consider in precarious labor, you know, just income is just one way of looking at it, because visiting professors are precarious labor. You may get a good salary for one year, but you're one year and then you're back. Who knows where you are the next year? So your income can go up and down um, very much. So it's just one of the factors. I think the group kind of, I think, came to the conclusion that the key issue is not, not how much income one earns, but rather the permanency of one's position. I think that's a really important thing to draw attention to. Speaking for myself, I am in a permanent, you know, I'm essentially, I'm a teaching professor, um, associate teaching professor, which means I, you know, I don't have tenure. Um, I have what I feel is, is quite good institutional support and um, a pretty stable position. And, you know, in that sense, I'm not contingent. But at the same time, I recognize within my own institution, not within my department, but within within the larger university, that there are other people whose job title and occupational status is ostensibly the same as mine, but they are in a much more sort of contingent place in terms of the roles that they fill within their departments or the you know the the place they have within the um, within the institutional system, and so the title. Title doesn't do it, doesn't explain it, right? And income doesn't necessarily explain it. There are a lot of there are a lot of different ways to be precarious, it sounds like. Yes, and also it's, it can be different from one national context to another as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing, um, you know, we, we, we're all you know, United States scholars in this case right now, but one thing that the precarious labor um, organization wants to do is to make sure that we're aware of these differences within different national contexts 
that precarious labor can take very, not only are there very many different forms in the U.S. in which it takes place, it can be, it can, it finds itself, but in different national contexts, it takes different shapes as well. Right. And one of the things we're talking about in this episode is what's going on in the U.K., um, as well as some of the, the issues that have arisen at institutions in the U.S. where even tenured faculty are finding themselves to be a lot more contingent than they might have expected. These are issues that, that ripple all through our institutions in too many cases. Um, a question, I'm wondering if, if you can summarize some of the key things that SCMS could do, either through this organization or more broadly, things that you'd like to see, to see the uh, organization doing to support that large chunk of the membership who are in precarious positions? I think there's a, um, I just you know, want to kind of jump off of a previous point to say that I think there's a real disconnect, and this is getting to a dangerous place, but there's a real disconnect between um, our progressive politics and our work and the progressive politics that inform the structure of the system in which we're working. And you start to think about issues like, um, why don't we have job sharing? Why don't we have part-time positions? Why don't we, why aren't we able to, um, as uh, independent scholars, we can't access NEH grants. We can't access grants from universities. We can't get institutional support for our own sort of research. And so I think first and foremost, if uh, members of SCMS can recognize the extent to which um, people who are contingent laborers are not uh, do not have the mentorship, are not getting a, enough opportunities to have the mentorship, um, the institutional support, the ability to do their own research, or even the service opportunities um, that um, other uh, kind of faculty are given. And so recognizing, I think those are you know, four or five different ways in which mm -hmm. sort of tenured faculty can help. Can you mentor a contingent faculty member? Can mm -hmm. you help them gain access to institutional research support? Mm -hmm. Can you advocate when you're hiring for different kinds of positions that might suit different kinds of people? But it really, there's nothing, um, there's no reason why this, this, um, this institution or this idea of a tenure, tenured faculty was set up for one, uh, you know, in one economic situation for one reason, but we've continued it. And maybe, uh, maybe we can, we can talk about how we can reframe this issue together. I, I, I want to jump on and say, you know, that that's something that we talked a lot about in the Pakistan class also is creating some sort of formalized um, mentorship program for contingent laborers, networking programs, you know, other ways of, of, of um, helping with this would be to um, invite contingent laborers to edit a journal or to, you know, this is adding more free labor, but it's also adding the kinds of, um, you know, service activities that need to be done to be able to keep yourself viable on the market if you want to go back on the market or just to enjoy, you know, the intellectual life that we went into this field for. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also another way that um, SEMS itself could contribute is, uh, you know, help with the situation is make the conference affordable for the underemployed and there are, are tiered payment systems for different things, but even that can be out of reach. So, you know, a, a category of, of, in which people can attend the conference for free, maybe, or, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. And um, uh, Jennifer, you were talking about childcare and I also have two kids and 
Um, I've been through the caucus, I've been trying for three years to figure out a way to set up some sort of childcare system for the conference. Um, the National Women's Studies Association provides free childcare throughout, throughout the entire conference. And it's not been something I've been able to get off the ground at all. There's, there's no support for it um, for lots of reasons, um, but there's gotta be a way for us to work around something like that. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's two things that I could think of. In, in a similar vein, we had several people who wanted to attend the, um, uh, the Cox on class put together a seminar on, on the crisis of academic labor. And several people wanted to participate in or attend the seminar. And um, at least two people pulled out because they were contingent faculty and unable to get um, any kind of funding. And in the in the same way that that uh, somebody who somebody who has a, a research account can donate to SEMS for the for the graduate travel awards, it would be nice to be able to do exactly the same thing for contingent faculty. Well, one thing I did kind of want to mention also is, um, you know, this, this kind of goes back to the discussion about tenured faculty, but to support unionizing efforts on campuses, um, there's a lot of grad student unionizing efforts, and that's really important. Um, more difficult is unionizing lecturers, um, mm -hmm. but there are lecture unions out there, and so providing support for that also, and whatever you know, manner people are able to, I think is really important. And we've talked about trying to use SEMS as a place to create some networking across campuses and across unionizing and organizing efforts. I just wanted to say something about um, um, how important it is. I think that this issue has been framed that this is a problem about those people. You know, it, it has been, been placed sort of on individuals mm -hmm. when um, if you look at what's happening around the country right now and how academic labor is getting more and more precarious, if you think about the fact that we have something like 65% of contingent um, of, of faculty are contingent faculty, um, and I think this number is growing, and so this is an issue that directly affects tenured faculty it's going to increase and it's, it's coming for you, you know? So, um, so can you join with us now in trying to kind of come up with a system that works for universities and works for individual professors? Mm -hmm. Very well one, more point, sorry, one more point also is um, the way in which contingent labor, um, we've already talked about how it disproportionately affects women, but also the, the kinds of pressures that it winds up affecting um, faculty of color, women of color especially, is also disproportionate and needs to be something that is taken into consideration. And how that follows on through through to junior faculty and expectations of junior faculty members as well. These are all terrific suggestions, and I really appreciate that you were all willing to take some time to, to kind of profile this really terrific effort that so many people have been working on on behalf of literally hundreds upon hundreds of members of this organization. This is not a, um, this is not a small group and it's not a small issue. And, and so I'm really, really grateful to all three of you for taking the time to talk about it. Well, thank you for covering it. <laughs> One of the things that really struck me in pursuing this conversation was a recognition that so many of us have experience with this issue, whether it's ourselves personally or working with colleagues or um, with spouses, with close friends. Virtually every academic 
has some kind of pretty significant interaction with this issue, and we're all pretty attuned to it, you would think. But at the same time, we don't do a very good job of trying to respond to the structural issues that are at stake. Well, I think it's it's both personal and institutional. I think personally, we need to put ourselves on the line and work for others. And especially if I am one of the 30% of non-contingent faculty who are working, I am I am sort of in that privileged caste and, and we need to do more personally to pay attention, but then also institutionally work through. And, and it seems like some of our systems are as part of larger issues in politics are against us and figuring out how do we fix a broken system and what power do we have within the system to fix it? And the answers to those questions change, right? I mean, there are there are people with endowed chairs and and who are chairs and you know, of departments and deans listening to this podcast, and they have a certain kind of institutional power, although their power is also constrained. Um, as we know about power, it always flows up and down, right? And there are possibly strategies and tactics that are available to people in those kinds of positions, but there are also ways in which the rest of us. Uh, who maybe don't have have quite that um, that kind of institutional clout can still work hard to make sure that we are trying to be as inclusive as we can be about contingent faculty. I think things like when if you're building a panel proposal for for a conference, increasingly there's been more and more conversation about making sure that there's gender equity and that there's some ethnic and racial and national diversity in how we we construct panels. Making sure that academic rank and institutional affiliation is is one of those things that we that we also deal with and and make room for independent scholars so that we try to evacuate some of the stigma from that term. Yeah, I think that's a great point to, um, as you say, handle not just then structures, but also the kind of cultural stigma attached to them, too. Right, because we are part of the structures, right? I mean, even you know, in the in the ways that we reference work and the ways that we invite people to collaborate with us, and we do have some control, even if we have no official control. And something Bruce Brazel said in in your interview that that tenure professors are probably not as enlightened as they think they are. I think that's an important point as well, that we can be rather insulated. And so that said, I want to present our next two interviews are with tenured professors. So um, the a key thing is, though, these are people who are best positioned to speak out about the issues they're going through because they do have at least a certain amount of security. Although we're, you know, we have to now even qualify that. And that is uh, the subject of the next interview here uh, with Alex Russo, who is Associate Professor in Department of Media Studies at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. And we want to bring attention to what's going on at, at Catholic University. Um, just real quickly, Alex will fill us in more detail, but in response to enrollment declines and a budget gap, the university administration has proposed some dramatic changes, and that includes the potential for layoffs of tenured faculty, essentially firing faculty, tenured faculty without cause. Um, right now, it appears there's enough voluntary departures. They don't have to do that, but they essentially kind of put into place a plan to do that. Um, there's going to be a net 6% reduction in faculty. There are other changes coming, including consolidation of some arts departments and an increase in teaching loads for undergrad instructors. So this is, again, just kind of one example of things happening to faculty, including tenured faculty. So we wanted to bring some attention to that and have Alex give us the you know inside scoop on what's going on there. Let's give it a listen.
Alexander Russo is an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He received his Ph.D. from Brown University. He is the author of Points on the Dial, Golden Age Radio Beyond the Networks from Duke University Press, and he has published on localism and radio formatting in satellite radio, considerations of oral attention and the reception of post-war transit casting, the idea of liveness and sound on disc transcription, and the role of race in the Green Hornet. I am joined by Alex Russo. Thanks so much for taking time out to talk with ECA Media, Alex. Uh, thanks. Good to be here, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <it's... laughs> I, I wish I could appear on ECA Media on uh, better circumstances, <laughs> but I think it's important for us to talk about what's going on at Catholic University of America right now. And there is a lot going on, unfortunately. So uh, we're glad to have you here to help explain this to us. And I think it's probably going under the radar for a lot of our listeners. Um, There's been some coverage by the Chronicle of Higher Education, but not too much else. So it'd be great for you to fill us in on what exactly is happening at the university and uh, what proposals are on the table. The coverage that we've been getting in the Chronicle is about what is sort of euphemistically called uh, a proposal for academic renewal. We've sort of colloquially been calling it the proposal for academic removal uh, because it purports to provide a template for uh, improving uh, a number of aspects of the university. But there's a tremendous disconnect um, in the proposal uh, in that the areas that it purports to strengthen uh, are financed by the removal of about 9% of the total faculty. Uh, that, so that's about 35 faculty members. Um, it looks, uh, in the most recent version of the proposal, almost all of those, I think there are only about four or five outstanding uh, involuntary departures, uh, to again use the language of the proposal. Um, and the rest of folks have either had contracts that have not been renewed or They've taken buyouts that have been offered. Supposedly about 80% or sorry, 80 faculty members, including several members of the media studies uh, department, received those buyouts, myself included. Right. So there, this has been a, a multi-year process. We had a number of budget cuts and staff layoffs a couple of years ago, which has all sort of been created by uh, the fact that we are a fairly tuition-dependent institution. And there's been a significant decline in the size of incoming classes. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, we had, I would say, close to 1,000 incoming freshmen. And this year, the budget target is, I think, 840. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's a significant decline. And, when, and there was a particularly bad year the uh, fall 2016, and I think we were down around 700 and some, maybe 725 or something like that. And so that has created uh, at least what the um, administration describes as a hole in the budget of about three and a half million dollars. There's some debate around uh, the extent of those budgetary woes. The faculty handbook um, clearly notes that if the, uh, for individuals, or programs to be terminated, the provost, you know, can declare a financial exigency, but he has not done that. Um, in fact, he very much said, when asked about this, I'm distinctly not doing that. Uh, likewise, the board of trustees gave the administration the uh, ability to deficit spend for a couple of years um, as that small class uh, sort of moves through their their time at Catholic. But again, the administration declined uh, to do that. 
And, and we're also doing things like moving our uh, sort of sports division that we play in, which involved creating two new sports like crew costs about half a million dollars, uh, both in terms of equipment and coaching and scholarships. So one of the reasons why faculty are somewhat skeptical or confused uh, is that there's on one hand a massive budget cuts coming out of the academic side, but on the other side, there's spending for other uh, for other priorities and the uh, administrative costs of the highest level of administrative salaries uh, has nearly doubled over the last uh, 10 years. Part of that is endemic to, I think, higher education as a whole, but uh, you know, clearly the, the types of raises uh, in, in salary increases that the highest level of, of administrators are getting um, in comparison to the faculty, uh, where we had very few, very small raises over the last decade. So this this sort of this precipitated, um, I, I guess, to, to, to give context here, uh, Catholic University of America has always been one of the more conservative Catholic institutions in the, in the country. This was started under the predecessor to the current president, Father O'Connell, now Bishop O'Connell. But there was a very different kind of relationship to the mission of the university uh, under O'Connell than under President Garvey. I guess, I guess it, was, it was sort of more uh, accepting of a wider range of views, right? There were, there were, you know, there were some incidents, you know, around questions of the mission uh, under uh, O'Connell, um, but it's just a different level in its entirety uh, under uh, John Garvey, who came in uh, in 2010. And uh, it's the, he instituted a number of policies to increase the identity, uh, the focus on a particular narrow uh, vision of Catholic identity. Um, he did things like um, removed even the possibility of alternate uh, sex floors in dormitories and went to sort of completely single sex dorms and instituted a number of, of changes in faculty hiring process. Um, whereby faculty or potential candidates have to sort of give a, a statement about how they will contribute to the mission of the university even before they're they're able to come to campus, and then this sort of focus on again a kind of pretty conservative Catholic identity is one that has created I think a narrower funnel right for the number of potential students who are interested and you can see that in our declining enrollments this is the, the tragedy of this is this is a sort of self-inflicted wound right and, and and one where in part i think the ideological orientation of the president is sort of being put into practice in, in a way that is creating this situation and it doesn't necessarily have to to be that way uh not other the administration likes to sort of speak to more, much wider kind of demographic shifts as the college-age millennials have decreased, right? but other institutions and, and other uh, peer Catholic institutions are not having the same problems with enrollment. Uh, so, so that's the sort of general context here. Uh, so specifically, uh, this, this program for academic renewal um, has been making its way through various committees um, with some fairly strong objection through a significant number of the faculty um, and, uh, and also uh, a significant number of students uh, who are sort of recognizing that the, the things that make Catholic a special place, the sort of close relationships that we develop with our students, uh, small classes and things like that would be 
reduced if you reduce the number of full-time faculty uh, and replace them with adjuncts. So in what ways might your department, the Department of Media Studies, be potentially affected by this? One of the more more controversial aspects of it, at least from our perspective, of the proposal that is um, that our students uh, rightly objected to is they wanted to move uh, media studies and art into a new performing arts uh, school uh, with music and drama. Um, but one of the things that has made media and communication studies successful is that our curriculum integrates theory and practice. Uh, and, you know, we have both in a critical, uh, we have sort of a critical thinking size of and media analysis uh, part of the curriculum, but everybody, uh, every student takes at least one media production class, and some students choose to uh, have an emphasis in their electives on production. Um, but that's a, you know, a subset of, of our majors, um, not the entire thing. And I think the, the idea there uh, was, um, A, based on a misunderstanding of what we actually do. And, and then there's a, there's a kind of, uh, there was also the suggestion that the provost made to our students is that there is a, a donor in the wings who wanted to create a Catholic film school. Uh, but it's not clear what that actually means, right? Catholic in content? Um, how, how does that get defined? It, it was all very unclear and amorphous. Um, and I think that sort of speaks to, to one of the questions that a lot of the faculty have around this process is to what extent is this being driven by other kinds of ideological donors? Um, in recent years, Catholic University has developed ties with a number of both very conservative Catholic groups uh, like the Legatus Fund and the Beckett Fund for Liberty, as well as um, taking significant amounts of money from the Koch brothers. Uh, the Koch brothers are underwriting our business school. Uh, they've established a, you know, to the tune of uh, $10, 15000000 million. They've given several million dollars to the politics department to create a, an institute on the study of statesmanship, um, which if you follow the Koch brothers controversy in Arizona State, there is also a institute for statesmanship there funded by the, uh, the Koch family foundations. And it's sort of viewed, at least by some, as a kind of proxy way to return to studying political literature canon that focuses that is sort of very sort of Eurocentric and as, as opposed to a kind of more multi, uh, multi-ethnic or multi-national kind of curriculum. The, the sort of question about whether these decisions are in part being driven by that sort of fundraising orientation. There, I mean, there are, other, there are other ways in which that sort of plays out. Uh, it just, the university just established a, a, another center in the law school for defending religious liberty, um, again, uh, and, and the university was one of the the plaintiffs in, in challenging the Obamacare birth control mandate. You know, and so so that orientation suffused many of the areas of the uh, of, of the university. You know, part of what you're saying is this seems very unique to Catholic University and its situation and its president and its Catholic character and so forth. But so much of the rest of what you're saying is this is part of this larger movement. We're seeing it in states like Wisconsin and Montana. Um, and it and seems like this is a, maybe canary in a coal mine is a, not the proper word, but it sort of seems like, you know, they've come for Catholic University and who's next. And that's, you know, and especially kind of hearing how all this is fusing together and how the administration then can kind of come up with these proposals and all of their buzzwords and just sort of push this through. This isn't just about Catholic University. 
No, absolutely not. Uh, it's you know it's something that we ha- we have seen in other institutions, and you know, it's something that I think all academics need to be aware of, and uh, and sort of recognize the need for solidarity between tenured faculty, contract faculty, and adjunct faculty, because this is pre- these are precisely along the, the fault lines that are being exploited here. Well, keeping on that that line of both macro and, and mi- micro and macro. So on the micro level, what do you think faculty at Catholic University right now have to do? Like, how are you all mobilizing? And then broadening out on the macro level, what should the rest of us be doing? The faculty have rec- responded in a couple different ways. First of all, uh, it's important to note that there are many committees with faculty on it of which I mean, I, I'm on one of them, uh, but committees on budget and, and, and sort of faculty economic welfare and the faculty handbook all came down strongly against this proposal uh, precisely because the proposal insists upon the provost right to terminate tenured faculty without cost. So that's, that has been the strongest and most unified kind of response uh, across the university to, to that aspect of the proposal. Um, there's been a website called SaveCatholic.com that has been created uh, where there is a, a lot of background and a extended comment section that where people have been chiming in. The other thing that the faculty uh, have done was, is to reconstitute uh, something called the Faculty Assembly, which is a, uh, a forum uh, to represent the voices of the faculty. One of the oddities of faculty governance or university governance at, at CUA is that the university senate has 14 administrators, 19 faculty representatives, and five student representatives. So um, when you see something like the most recent development, when that body uh, voted to advance the proposal to the board of trustees who will be meeting in a couple weeks, uh, it's important to recognize that that body was is nearly majority administrators, and so that sort of creates an inherent conflict of interest, right? When you have those individuals who are serving at the pleasure of the president, uh, and they don't have the same ability to uh, to push back or to speak out that uh, tenured faculty have, and so this 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 group, the faculty assembly, has issued. Uh, we've sort of come together. There were over a hundred people at the last uh, meeting when we came together, which is you know um, a good third of the faculty, uh, and we voted to reject the provost proposal and affirmed our commitment to tenure. Uh, something that the provost would not do in the university senate meeting that occurred on May 9th. And so depending on how this plays out, uh, we're going to meet again uh, next week and there'll be sort of questions around whether there will be a faculty vote of no confidence in in the administration. Uh, It's it's not clear uh, what the outcome of this will be. So we're sort of right in the middle of it. Well, and as you said, we're still kind of in the middle of this and both, as you say, at Catholic University, but also I think all of these larger changes happening in higher education. And it seems to me, at least, we have to be very vigilant and pay attention and be outspoken and and try to be advocates for ourselves. I think that's maybe something that's difficult for academics. We're very focused in our own classrooms and in our own research. And having to speak for our profession in higher ed is seemingly more vital than it's ever been before. I agree. And, and I think it's also one of the things where we have to, again, sort of have solidarity across different levels of institution. Uh, you, know, you made reference to what's going on 
uh, in Wisconsin and Montana, right? Um, so you're sort of seeing, I think, this play out in the teaching-oriented state schools. But I think it's sort of creeping up uh, into uh, all, all kinds of institutions. And eventually, I think we'll reach you know, up into the highest you know, tiers of research uh, R1 institutions. We'll have to see what happens you know, to you know, the University of, of Wisconsin at Madison right? mm-hmm. or, or, or Milwaukee, and, and if they can maintain those, the, the kind of research uh, standards that, that are, and the kind of faculty that they've historically had you know, under the Koch-funded Scott Walker you know, attack on, on tenure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is, this is something that's probably interested, interests the SCMS community Right, uh, because you know Wisconsin plays such a, an outsized role in the field as a you know as a pipeline for, or, or as a graduate school and a pipeline for you know many of the faculty or and, and scholars uh, in the field, and and so I think that 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 has some sort of specific implications for media studies as Madison goes, you know, so some goes at CMS in some ways. Well, that's a pretty powerful point to end on. So we'll do so. I don't know how to sign off. Good luck. What do I say? Good luck to you. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we're thinking of you. We'll be watching out for you. Uh, yeah. You know, I think, you know, that kind of um, that kind of support matters. You know, one of the, the things that we, you know, when we organized our, our students and they sent messages to the administration, sort of testifying to what what we did and why we mattered to them. Um, and that that kind of public pressure is the kind of thing that academics need to do, right? We need to sort of show what our work is, the, the hard work that we do, um, and why that matters to both, you know, the field in terms of research, but also to our students in terms of the teaching that we do. Chris, that was a great interview. I'm so glad you uh, were able to to connect with Alex about that. Now, this was recorded a couple of weeks ago, right? So right. things have changed a bit. I don't know if anything's changed. We, we've had things that have happened. So on June 4th, there was a collection of uh, faculty called the Faculty Assembly that presented to the university trustees a vote of no confidence in the university leadership. So saying that President Garvey and Provost Andrew Abela had pushed through their proposal, which included the right to fire tenure faculty without cause. And the letter wrote, quote, all the while they dismissed the input and perspectives of the faculty. Indeed, they seem unconcerned that an action like breaking tenure would do irreparable damage to the reputation of the university. University. So that was their no confidence statement. The very next day, the university's governing board affirmed its support for the administration. So according to the Washington Post, the board said it has great confidence in President Garvey, but acknowledged that the faculty complaints showed the university faced, quote, some sort of communication problem we've got to fix. Um, mm-hmm. In also quoted in the article, Stephen McKenna, associate professor and chair of the media studies department, he sees more to it than that. He, he uh, told the Washington Post, professors have questions about finances, governance, management, executive salaries, lack of transparency and candor and communication, the whole direction and conduct of this leadership. So that's more than just communication. And then one last uh, kind of kick in the shins, at the same time the governing board announced their confidence in the administration. Uh, we also learned the Koch Foundation is giving yet more money to Catholic University. So this is a $2 million donation to help open a branch campus in Tucson 
in 2019 with an eye toward reaching underserved Latino students in Arizona um, because it's a market that has many Latino Catholic students. And literally this article used the word market, right? And all of these words mm-hmm. of, of uh, you know, again, sort of treating this like it's a business. Um, so as they're offering buyouts to faculty to save $3 million, here's $2 million from the Koch Foundation to open a new market in Tucson. So that's the update. Long pause and sigh. Yeah, long pause and sigh. Um, one wonders, this, this is a kind of moment that's kind of tailor-made for the disembodied third person. One wonders, doesn't one, <laughs> about the kind of mix of teaching credentials and employment models that they would that Catholic would be likely to use on a campus that they established in Tucson. Doesn't one wonder? One does wonder. They did insist that the Koch Foundation will have no say in hiring. But again, you know, what's the saying? Like, he who pays the piper calls the tune, right? This is just a fundamental principle. And there are always strings attached there. And so, yeah, one wonders. Okay. We need another segue. We do need another speaking, segue. Speaking of, of the marketization of higher education... You've been busy. You've been talking all around the world. Well, I have. Well, just across the ocean, although that is kind of far. But um, we wanted to consider also what's happening in the UK. So we didn't want this to be only US focused. But in March of this year, a number of UK universities saw faculty strike actions uh, guided by the University and College Union, or UCU in the UK. Uh, And the strike was over pensions, so just one issue. But it reflects, again, larger issues in faculty labor and administrative relationships. So I want to know more about what was going on, and especially I was intrigued by faculty going on strike and, and kind of acting as a force and literally walking out of classrooms. So I wanted to know more. So um, I sought out Brett Mills, who is senior lecturer in the School of Art, Media, and American Studies at the University of East Anglia. And he is also president of East Anglia's University and College Union chapter. So he was a strike leader. So he seemed like a good source to go to to find out what happened with the strikes. Um, And one intriguing thing that comes up in our conversation is a notion of the UK system is different than the U.S. system, but one of the fears is that the U.K. system is becoming Americanized, and I don't mean in, in good ways. So you're not talking about, like, McDonald's. Right, and, no. And maybe no, maybe more, actually you are talking about McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, right, more McDonald's, a, you know, McDonald's-sponsored something. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, listen and see what, what I mean by that. All right. Brett Mills is a senior lecturer in the School of Art, Media, and American Studies at the University of East Anglia. He received his PhD from Canterbury Christ Church College with a focus on television sitcom. And he's published widely on comedy and popular television, including three books, Television and Sitcom from the BFI, The Sitcom from Edinburgh University Press, and Creativity in the British Television Comedy Industry from Rutledge. His interest in teaching and pedagogy has also resulted in co-authoring the textbook Reading Media Theory, Thinkers, Approaches, and Context from Pearson, now in its second edition. Thanks a lot for taking time out to chat with us, Brett. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm assuming most of our non-UK listeners didn't hear much about the recent academic labor strike in the UK, and you took on a leadership position during the strikes. You're president of East Anglia's University and College Union branch, so you're a good person to fill us in. So what was the strike about? How did it all play out? 
The strike was about pensions. Uh, there was a new deal offered to us to do with pensions, which would significantly affect uh, the amount of money that everybody was going to get uh, in their pensions at retirement. Um, so that's what it was kind of formally about. The ways in which the British system works is one where we have to have our pensions kind of reviewed by a government regulator every three years. So we kind of have this fight every three years. We, we were on strike sort of three years ago connected to this. But the key thing that was happening was uh, we currently have a system which is defined benefits, i.e. as an employee, you know what your pension is going to be when you retire, you know what amount of money you're going to get. And they wanted to move over to an entirely defined contribution system, which was basically, you know how much you're paying in, but what you actually get when you retire would be based entirely upon the stock market. Uh, and obviously what people want is certainty in their pensions. And many staff were saying, well, I'm happy to pay more in my pension as long as I know exactly what I'm getting at the end. Uh, employers were saying that they couldn't afford this. The union and lots of other people were doing their own maths and were saying, yes, you can. Plus, as an employer, you choose what you can afford. And this is particularly within the context of a very live debate in the UK at the moment is uh, the pay of our vice chancellors, which has skyrocketed over the last kind of a decade or so. And so uh, universities are spending lots of money on very senior management and also on very shiny buildings, um, but don't seem to be kind of investing in staff in the same way. It was also playing out actually as us arguing for the protection of the profession. These changes that were going to come in to do with pensions were are not retrospective. So they were going to impact upon junior members of staff far more than older senior members of staff. And so I didn't think, and lots of other people didn't think that it was fair that I would get a better pension, who's somebody's kind of who's mid-career, than somebody who's just starting out now. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And so that's what the, the dispute was about. How it played out was we carried out what was the kind of largest industrial action in the history of the UK uh, higher education, 14 days of strike across four weeks. It was escalating action. So two week, two days the first week, three days, four days, five days uh, of strike action. And the employers had said they would not negotiate with us within two days of us going on strike when they saw the size of the picket lines across the universities in the UK. They came back to the uh, to the negotiating table and, and, and various offers were made uh, during that time. The first offer they made, we rejected. And actually what we've ended up with uh, so that kind of the issue is still sort of ongoing. But what we've ended up with is a joint committee that's going to be set up between the union and the employers to look at pensions overall and try and work out a way forward so that we're doing it as a kind of discussion. And it's quite interesting that we've had to fight in order to actually say, can we have a negotiation and a discussion about this? So it's ongoing because it depends what that committee, what decision that committee comes to. But hopefully we can come to a set of conclusions, which mean, I said earlier, we have to go through this rigmarole every three years. If we can come to an agreement now, hopefully we can kind of settle this for a good 10, 15, 20 years. And then when, and when the review comes around in three years, it'll just be a much more straightforward thing. So I think we've come to a good solution. We haven't come to the end yet and we have to see what happens, but it's the start of kind of taking seriously the issue of pensions is sort of going, let's come to a solution that has a long-term outcome. Uh, but lots of people are nervous about where we've kind of ended up and we have to kind of keep an eye on what's happening. In terms of what happened here and the, and, and, and the, uh, the kind of industrial action, uh, we had kind of massive picket lines here at UEA, so did kind of every other uh, university that was involved in the action. 
we had uh, students on the picket line. We had student unions on the picket line. Uh, the student union nationally in the UK supported the action. Our student union here at the University of East Anglia did as well, and we're amazingly grateful for that. It, you know, it obviously makes it much easier for us to carry this out if our students are supporting us, because obviously they're the ones who are being affected by um, uh, teaching being cancelled and, and other things. And the and the very interesting thing was uh, the number of people we had on the picket lines and the number of members of the union we had went up during the industrial action. Uh, obviously, 14 days, we we were, were worried that it would kind of drop off, that people would be excited about industrial action at the beginning, but then, you know, it would start to drop off. It did the exact opposite. And I think this is fascinating because obviously to join a union, you're paying a membership fee. And what that meant was people were paying a membership fee to go on strike and have their salary deducted. It's an interesting <laughs> decision, people, but it just shows the strength of feeling that existed. Well, I was just going to say, it's sort of interesting then to hear that notion of, of that building support. And I'm curious about then what you sensed from across the university hierarchy. I would assume because of this is a union action, you find some resistance from the administration. Were there, you know, was faculty totally on board? You said students were supportive. I'm also curious about public sentiment. What was the range of resistance and support you got along the way? We have been used to uh, significant amounts of resentment towards strike action, particularly from from the media and from the public. And so actually we were geared up for that and we're expecting a kind of backlash. Interestingly, we got pretty much the exact opposite. The media in Britain, where it did cover it, I mean, you know, strike action doesn't get covered by the media a lot, where it did cover it, it covered it positively. It did say the, the sets of questions that we were raising and the issues we had with the methodology about how our pensions were being calculated, they were saying we had a point. And so actually a lot of the things that we put in place to try, in a very defensive way to try and deal with the flack we thought we were going to get, we didn't have to uh, deal with because it didn't, it didn't happen, as I say. And it's within the context of much broader questions about universities and university funding in the UK particularly to do with kind of vice chancellor's salaries. Uh, and so because that story has been rolling on for so long, I think the media did sort of think, well, actually, it's quite clear universities have got money because they're paying senior management significant amounts of money. So why are they not able to kind of sort this pensions uh, issue out? The responses of vice chancellors and senior management was different at different universities. Here at UEA, it was relatively benign. Um, I mean, officially, obviously, strike action and picketing should take place off campus. They allow us on campus. So we were kind of, you know, picketing on campus. That's kind of mainly a health and safety issue. But they do. Uh, and we use the student union building for a whole set of activities. Uh, so we we're kind of we were on campus doing sort of some things. Other universities were much more resistant and shouty. What was interesting, though, was that some vice chancellors at other universities very publicly said that they supported us and that they had a problem with the pensions calculations that had been offered. So there was a very different uh, range of, of views. So, yeah, so that was how it worked out. Well, and a lot of what you're uh, saying here sounds quite similar to some of the things happening in the U.S. and everywhere from right now we've got uh, public school teachers going on strike. And then, of course, in higher education, the you know administrative salaries going up and we are dealing with you know state funding declining. At the same time, we've got even more political involvement in administration. So I'm curious, and I don't know how much you know about the U.S. context, but what do you see as similar happening transatlantically? Uh, and then what do you see as, as unique to the U.K. context? Um, what's similar is over the past kind of decade or so, the ways in which universities have been understood in the UK has 
kind of moved away from a European model and towards an American model and the idea that we should now understand students as consumers, students now pay to go to university, whereas when I studied it was free and you got a grant. But that idea that universities are competing with each other for students. Um, at the moment, what students can pay is capped by the government, but there's lots of debate about trying to get rid of that and just letting universities compete. And, you know, Oxford and Cambridge will charge tens of thousands a year and other universities won't be able to. So there's that kind of marketization of education and the idea that we should understand students not as learners or as colleagues or peers or whatever, but instead we should understand them as consumers who are buying a product and a service that we're offering. Um, I mean, it might be, it probably is, I would guess, a gross simplification of the American model, but the concerns that exist in Britain are that we're heading towards an American model and an American understanding of education, as opposed to thinking of education and universities as a public good that should be funded you know, via taxes and, and that have benefits beyond simply those for the individual learner and instead should just be you know, that they're a societal good because of the research we do and, and all those kinds of things. So... I think we're heading in that sort of direction and that's the big concern. And it was very, very clear during the strike action, even though it was it was formally about the pensions, people were agitated and were on the picket lines because they cared about pensions, but they were also just annoyed about a whole set of things that have happened over the past 10 years. And the discussions you ended up having on the picket line were very often about uh, things like the marketization of, of universities. And actually now as a union, at UEA, but also nationally, those are the discussions we're having having now because we've discovered that the, there's a whole range of issues which people are very, very animated about. Um, and the pensions um, was kind of the lightning rod for a set of frustrations and, and annoyances that have been going on for some time. Um, one of the key ones is, and I don't know how this plays out in the States, is issues to do with academic freedom and the extent to which we're being lent on in terms of the funding we get for the kind of research we should do, what the purposes of teaching are. Should teaching just be a thing which which trains people to go and get a job or should education have a much broader remit than that? So the idea that we are a group of professionals who should be, up to an extent, I'm not saying entirely, trusted to do a whole set of things and, and left alone to get on with it, there has been a kind of much more managerial process in, in British universities, and I've experienced that over the 10, 15, last 10 or 15 years. Much more kind of government interference in what education should be for and its social role. And so there's a lot more kind of pushing back against that and trying to reclaim the university, as, as I say, as, as a societal good, as, as a public good, um, which has purposes beyond just purely economic ones. And how do you suggest we do that? I mean, obviously, you've got some sense of, um, you know, of organizing sort of and as a union leader, you're going to be able to, you know, like you said, negotiate pensions. Speaking to our listeners, then what should we be doing? What can anyone, you know, who cares about higher education, what we, should we be doing individually, collectively? What do you think we can do to, to sort of fight it back against these developments? The key thing to do, which happened a lot here, is join a union in the first place. It's quite clear that unions function in that way. And, and, and you can tell, say, here at UEA, but also nationally, we feel revitalized as a union because we suddenly discovered there are lots of people who are bothered about the same things as we were. You sort of think it's just us in the corner angry about things. And you suddenly discover hundreds and hundreds of people agree with you. Um, and then, I mean, and the other thing we should be doing is refusing to accept the language that is used to talk about education. So it is now quite common 
for as I say, for, for students to refer to as consumers. And I am refusing to use that language. They're not. And I, and I accept I have responsibilities towards students. This isn't me saying I should just be able to teach whatever I like. And if they don't like it, who cares? It's not me saying that. Um, but it is me saying they are not consumers. That's not a, that's not a, an appropriate kind of pedagogical or educational um, relationship to be set up. Collective action, quite clearly, and 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 as, you, as you've already said, the, these things are happening in a, in a, uh, an American context as well. Um, collective action scares the hell out of people in charge. It really does. And I th- I think as a union, we'd sort of forgotten that. But when you've got hundreds of people standing together. Uh, particularly during a strike action where you're saying I'm willing to give up my salary because of a set of beliefs I've got, it really does have a, a very sort of significant force. Um, and so unions are kind of one of the key ways of doing it. So I think that's kind of a key thing, which which might sound a bit kind of nebulous, but actually that kind of collective action, which which if you think about it, is what managers do. Um, that's what a university management is. It's a collective group of people deciding a set of things and they have power because they come together as managers and agree with each other. Well, if we do exactly the same and push back, I think one of the things that we need to do, I think it has been easy for unions to be perceived as simply complaining about things and not offering solutions. And, and we've done a lot of work, I think, about at, at a local level of trying to say, here are a set of solutions. So we're not just complaining about everything. Here's a set of things we think that could resolve this. We're doing lots of work at the moment on workload stress and mental health. And so you offer up a solution. Of course, by doing that, one, you know, that's ways in which management work. They like that kind of productive dialogue rather than just complaining. But two, you then give you're then forcing management to come up with reasons to reject your solutions, which is different from going, here's a problem. What are you going to do about it? If you go, here's a problem. Here's a solution to it. They either have to agree to it or they have to come up with a very good reason not to do it. And I think, I mean, again, I, I don't know the United States context, but I think historically that's that's kind of been one of the problems with our union that we've looked as if we just complain about things. And instead, if we can kind of go, Here, here's a route out uh, of that problem, that can be really, really powerful and and is a form of language and a form of dialogue which management are used to doing you know they they like when somebody gives a report with a set of recommendations that that's a, that's a, a discourse that they're used to well we can do that um and the other thing we can do is and i think i think which was very really noticeable during the strike action is of course people who work in universities are smart people and so you take advantage of the fact that you've got really smart people. What was really noticeable during the strike action was so it was about pensions. Well, of course, you've got loads of academics on strike who work in economics, who work in business, who are pensions experts. So they were producing loads and loads of data and doing lots of analysis, which was kind of rejecting the arguments which management were presenting. And so take advantage of the fact that the people you've got on side are smart people who know what they're talking about, who know how to construct arguments, who know how to deal with data. And that was, and also really noticeably, once you're on strike, um, those people have got their days to fill. They come on the picket line and go, what do you do in the afternoon? Well, what they do end up doing is going home in the afternoon and pouring through data and doing loads of research. And that became amazingly powerful because you suddenly had thousands of people up and down the country working collectively, doing loads of research to produce information, which just showed that the case we were making was a convincing one. So don't forget that we're clever and we should, we should capitalize on that. I like that in the slogan. Don't forget we're clever. I like <laughs> yeah. that. Well, thanks so much, and especially for giving us some specifics and guidelines to follow. And we'll uh, we'll be paying attention now to see where the pension fight goes and other things in UK education. So thanks so much. Thank you. 
so there we go. Another story, this one from the UK. Um, and one, I think, thread through all of this is how important organizing is. And again, yes. not just our, our, we're each our own little dot on the map. We're each our one person in our, our, our office, although increasingly we're apparently losing our offices too. There's an mm-hmm. article on the Chronicle about that. I'll post that. Um, but organizing, communicating with each other, advocating for each other. And if it takes doing what has happened in the UK, striking for each other and maybe not for something that's personally affecting you, but someone, you know, who is in a somewhat similar position and we're kind of striking on behalf of the profession, you know, advocating for our positions. Yeah. And obviously we've got some really great examples, really hopeful examples of people who are doing precisely that. Uh, and as, as you brought up in your conversation with Brett, there are, increasingly efforts outside of the university to organize on behalf of education too. I mean, when when you have K-12 teachers in Oklahoma, of all places, right. standing up and going down to the legislature and, and insisting that they're being undervalued, that's that's not a small thing. And, they're, yeah. and they have parents along with them. They have students. It's not just teachers showing up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, we said we weren't going to end this very special episode on a happy note, but we have to give ourselves something to hold on to, right? Gosh and I think darn it. That's, I think we have to look to that, the power of organizing, the power of individuals, and the power, again, of combining forces of students, teachers, people who, you know, aren't teachers but care about higher education and, you know, secondary education and, and public education. We need to be more active, more visible, more vocal about what matters to us and why we think it should matter to more people. Yes. And, you know, we're, we are all so used to feeling ourselves as subordinate from our first grad class to being on the job market, to being junior faculty, to, you know, all the different sorts of circumstances we find ourselves in. Powerlessness is a kind of, um, it's endemic, right? Mm-hmm. But it is not the only experience of, of feeling ourselves implicated within systems of power. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that this conversation has reminded me of is I have virtually always been more personally enriched by networking out and I'm going to use the word down, even though it's not really the word I, that, I mean, it sounds pejorative, right? But mm-hmm. out and down, not to people who are below you, but who maybe don't have, um, who are not as credentialed or don't have the institutional affiliation that you have, but that building connections with students, with people who are relatively more on the outside, um, that's almost always better than trying to find the fancy person to talk to, mm-hmm. you know, and, and always trying to build relationships upward. And of course, we're always doing that too, but that kind of reaching out and building community by building relationships and paying attention to what's happening to people who aren't as fortunate as oneself, it's personally enriching. And I think it helps to build the kinds of communities that can be a little bit more supple in responding to some of these really, really difficult circumstances. And I also think we're in a time now where everything, I'm going to swear, we don't swear much on Akamita oh, yeah. podcast, but everything is shit right now. Everything just feels like shit. And, and especially that notion of powerlessness over politics, like over what um, my senator is doing or, or what the president is doing. Uh, you know, it, it's so easy to get paralyzed. And so maybe one solution is to, within our world, what we can control or what we can have an impact 
kind of pull on that thread. And if we're all pulling on our threads, you know, maybe that I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors at this point, you know, maybe we can build, build in some change, but sort of finding a place where you can have an impact. And I, and I feel like I can't mm-hmm. do anything to stop anything Donald Trump is doing with our federal courts. But if there's something I can do, as you say, even to, you know, assist one person and, and help one person in academia or convert a student to our cause, something like that, then that's something. And just the other day, I'll make sure we post this article. I was reading an, an article that I think was, it was in The Guardian, but it was an op-ed by an academic about um, thinking about what it means to serve on a, on a hiring committee and being faced with dozens upon dozens of incredibly smart, qualified, talented people and trying to figure out, okay, who's the, who's the um, you know, how are we going to come up with a short list here? And he said, well, maybe what we should ask ourselves is who needs the job the most? Mm-hmm. Which seems like a, a radical thing, but it's worth thinking about. And speaking of thinking about that, that's actually a nice segue to uh, the last point we wanted to get across here, because this is going to be a topic of a future episode. So uh, Stephanie Brown, one of our producers, she just got her PhD like like two mm-hmm. days ago, three days ago. So yay, Dr. Brown. And of course, because she is thinking is in the terms of we're thinking of wanting to help others. And so she wanted to do a segment on being on the market, um, you know, the challenges of it and whether it's from the, you know, you are the person on the job market or if you are on a search committee and you have advice. So she is embarking on that segment, but she wants your help. She wants input. She wants questions. She wants advice, tips. You can be anonymous. This is an online survey she's asking uh, you to fill out so you can provide your name and email address if you want. You can stay completely anonymous. And she wants anything. Again, if you just have questions, if you're really uncertain about things, or if you are you know, on a search committee, you do a lot of hiring, you have advice for what really gets the attention of a search committee, um, we want to hear from you. So we've got this survey posted online. To find the link, you can go to our website, aka-media.org. Uh-huh. Did it. Uh-huh. Um, or uh, there's also a link on our Twitter, which is aka underscore media. That's it. That's it. All right. So check out that survey. And again, anything you've got, the smallest of questions, the biggest of tips, go fill out that survey. It's a terrific effort. And we, we really need your help to make, it, to make it as strong as possible. We do. And so hopefully then that is ending on a positive note, I guess, that we're, that we're trying to, to help yeah. spread the word, to help educate, to, to work together. Um, that's what we're trying to do. I think now is a reasonable time to point out that Acmedia is produced by one graduate student, one recently finished PhD who is on the job market, one independent producer and contingent faculty member, two tenured faculty members, and one faculty member in a permanent but non-tenured position. And I think in that regard, our mix is actually pretty typical. And I will say, I don't know if any of us get any credit for this. Like, I... You know, I already have tenure. It's this very small thing. It wouldn't help me be, you know, I'm associate professor. This wouldn't have anything to do with me being promoted to full. You know, I'm sure it helps. Like, you know, Stephanie Brown having her name out there as someone who helps us out. I'm I'm sure that that counts. But in terms of like the, again, the institutional system, I don't know that it counts. And yet I love doing this and I would never want to quit doing it. Here, here. All right. So, so we're not going to quit doing it. We'll be back next month. We are Joel Neville Anderson at the University of Rochester. Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, but not for long. She's on the job market. Todd Thompson, uh, whose magical ears make it all listenable down uh, in Austin, Texas. We've got Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. And I'm Michael Kackman, and that person right there is... 
Chris Becker, and we are at the University of Notre Dame. We also uh, we have to thank Society for Cinnamon Media Studies, SCMS, for uh, giving us money to help keep this thing going. We also want to thank those who were willing to be named and who were willing to speak out about the issues that they're facing, uh, including Brett Mills at the University of East Anglia. And Alex Russo at Catholic University of America. And we'll keep an eye on what's happening in those places as we go forward. As well as Jamie Rogers, Jennifer Wong, and Bruce Brazel, who have been working so hard on uh, conditions within SCMS. Yeah, it's really, really important work, and and we greatly appreciate it. All right. Try to get out there and uh, appreciate a little sunshine. Yeah, whatever your summer activities are, no matter what your position is, go find some, some sunshine, warm place to sit for a while. Put on your sunscreen. Don't forget that.